This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. We're wrapping up the 50th anniversary of hip-hop by looking back at some of our most memorable interviews with performers who hold a significant place in history. Our first interview is with RZA, the chief composer and producer of the Wu-Tang Clan, which has often been called one of the most revolutionary rap groups of the mid-90s. They turned the concept of a hip-hop crew inside out by creating a collective of nine MCs who also created their own music under different pseudonyms. RZA is also known as Prince Rakim, Bobby Digital, the RZA Rector, and Robert Diggs, which is his birth name. He joined his cousins, Jizza the Genius, an old dirty bastard in 1992 to form the Wu-Tang Clan. Martial arts movies had a big influence on RZA growing up. The name Wu-Tang Clan was inspired by kung fu movies and a mythical martial sword technique. RZA also composed music for several films, including Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, as well as Kill Bill in its sequel, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Recently, RZA was one of the executive producers of the Hulu series Wu-Tang, an American saga, which chronicled the rise of the group. The third and final season wrapped up in April. Terry Gross spoke with RZA in 2005 after the release of his book, The Wu-Tang Manual. We start with a single, Cream, from the Wu-Tang's 1993 debut album. I grew up on the crime side, the New York Times side. Staying alive was no job, had second hands. Moms bounced on old men, so then we moved to Shaolin land. A young dude, you're rocking the gold tooth. Low goose, only way I begin to G-York was drug loot. And let's start it like this, son. Rolling with this one and that one. Pulling out gats for fun. But it was just a dream for the team who was a fiend. Started smoking wolves at 16. And running up in gates and doing it for high stakes. Making my way on fire skates. No question I was speed for cracks and weed. The combination made my eyes bleed. No question I will flow off and try to get the door. That's the Wu-Tang Clan. My guest is the RZA. Welcome to Fresh Air. Well, thanks for having me on the show, y'all. Now, you know, in addition to being, you know, an MC and to being one of the rappers with Wu-Tang Clan, you were also uh, the chief producer and arranger. Can you talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, composing and sampling the music backing for the records? Like, what, what your approach is to that? Well, my musical knowledge really came from being a DJ. You know, at the age of 11, I got my first pair of uh, turntables, uh, straight arm techniques, you know what I mean? The hardest ones that you could scratch on. And I was in, uh, building up an extensive uh, record collection. Even as a DJ with a four-track, my production style was similar to the style you hear on 36 Chambers, which was taking something from old soul music to something from a funky drum, you know, whether James Brown or or a Willie Mitchell-type drum pattern, and then come with maybe a Woody Woodpecker record, you know what <laughs> I mean? Yeah. And then mix that in with some kind of classical. So I, I was a kind of DJ that would do that. When I would DJ at parties, you know, when I would interlude between records, I may throw on a Peter Pan quote or something, and then throw on a crazy hip-hop gutter beat that makes the crowd go crazy. So when I start producing, I had that same approach. So um, were you, you know, since you had such a wide variety of musical records that you were drawing from, were any of those records things that you first heard from your parents' record collections? Oh, guaranteed. 
I mean, you know, you know, it's, everything started from what our parents had, of course. Um, so what was in your parents' me, collection? Um, my parents had um, all the soul records from, you know, from well, well I lived, I, was, I had a single mother most of most of the, most of the time, but from the Crusaders to the OJ's to the Delphonics to the Temptations, you know, what I mean, all the way um, to Kenny Rogers was in the crate, you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. so it was a so. My mother was, um, being a single mother, I guess she probably went through a lot of different feelings and changes. And uh, she had a lot of different artists um, and records that she would play, you know, over the years. But what made my selection and collection so ill was, it wasn't only my parents' records. I was taking everybody's parents' records, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I went to inspect the deck house and his mother had a whole closet full of old records that she gave me. Uh, Ghostface Moms, I mean... Uh, people that be in New York City on, in the village just selling records on the street corner. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the kind of kid that buys everything. I used to buy records everywhere, anywhere, no matter what. And I'm still kind of like that, you know. I've now I've collected records from over probably 40 different countries. Let's talk a little bit about um, how you started composing. Because you know, you, you, you first were, were you were you were DJing basically. You were you were sampling things from records mm-hmm. and playing re- records un, under raps. But you actually compose now. So how did you make that transition? That was pretty uh, some that um that came to being. I think around nineteen uh, ninety five ninety six. You know, I had a few platinum records under my belt already. I was uh getting you know getting worldwide worldwide recognition. And really, a lot of praises from the music industry and community about what I did, what I've done, the sound that I was bringing to the table. But I took a look and was like, you know what? Wow, I'm I'm considered a famous musician, but technically, uh, for the far as terminology, I'm not a musician because there's no instrument that I can really say I can play. And so, I kind of felt like I'm one of the kind of people that like to be part of a fraternity because he earned it. And so I took the time out to start reading books on the music theory and studying chord progressions and the way things should be. Because I always heard it, you know what I mean? I always heard it, you know, by listening to songs or if you listen to some of my samples, when hip-hop was only doing one-loop samples or maybe two-bar samples, I came with the four bars or I came with, with, you know, sample changes, you know, as if I played it, you know what I mean? I was able to take, you know, three different parts from one song and make it become, you know, an intro a verse and a chorus. Um, so um, so I had the song structure and arrangement always in my mind, but I had to use other people's music. But around 1996, I decided to start studying the theory and being able to make my own progressions and make my own phrases of music. And uh, and that's what started leading, leading into me uh, being a composer. Um, you know, I always sampled stuff that was similar to that anyway, and so I wanted to learn how to play it myself, how to express it myself. And I think in 1997 on the Wu-Tang Forever album, you first hear me doing things like that. You listen to songs like Triumph, and you hear how the um, how the strings, you know, they come in, they have, you know, they have a, you know, it's, 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 it's played staccato, but they, it's a rise to it. So it's like, dun, 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 It rises up, and then they drop out, and then the voice will come in, and then that'll drop out, then you just hit a guitar hit with the piano. So... So that was like during the, during ninety seven is when I started experimenting with um, the theory of music, chord progressions, and things like that, mixed with my sample DJ background, and that's how I produced Wu Tang Forever. 
Well, let's hear Triumph from Wu-Tang Forever. Here it is. I bomb atomically, Socrates, philosophies, and hypotheses. Can't define how I be dropping these mockeries. Lyrically perform armed robbery. Flee with the lottery. Possibly they spotted me. Battles guard showgun. Explosion when my pen hits. Tremendous. Ultraviolet shine blind forensics. I inspect view through the future. See millennium. Killer bees sold 50 gold, 60 platinum. Shackling the matches with drastic rap tactics. Graphic displays melt the steel like blacksmiths. Black Wu jackets, queen bees ease the guns in. Rumble with patrol. Moment here, gas lace the function. Heads by the score, take flight inside a war. Ticks hit the floor, die hard fans demand more. Behold the bold soldier, control the globe slowly. Proceeds the blow, swinging swords like Shinobi. Stomp grounds and found footprints in solid rock. Who got it locked, performing live on your hottest fly. As the world turns, I spread like germ. Bless the globe with the pestilence. The hard headed never learn. This my testament to those burn. Play my position in the game of life, standing firm. On foreign land, jump the gun out the frying pan. And to the fire, transform into the ghost rider, a six-pack and a street car named Desire. Who got my That's Triumph from the album Wu-Tang Forever, and my guest is the RZA of the Wu-Tang Clan, also a solo artist. Um, you know, you, you do something on, on some of your music that I think you call a, a detuned piano, and listening to it, I never knew whether it was an electric piano or what, but it has this really distinctive sound, and um, um, in fact, I, I want to play something from... Um, um, the, 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 the Jim Jarmusch movie, um, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. And you did the score for this movie, and it's, it's really... Yeah, my first score. Yeah, and it's really, it's really wonderful. Um, let, let me play the theme from it. That's music from the Jim Jarmusch movie, Ghost Dog, The Way Ghost of Dog. the Samurai, composed by my guest, the RZA. What are you doing on that? What, what's the keyboard that we're hearing? Um, the keyboard, the keyboard that, um, I use for um, Ghost Dog, I use a combination, but I use mostly, uh, it's a keyboard called the Kurzweil 2500, and there's another keyboard called the Insonic ASR-10. And uh, the ASR-10 is a sampling keyboard. The, KR, the Kurzweil is also a sampling keyboard, but... It's um, it's made with this thing they call VAS technology, which is variable architect synthesis technology, and uh, that means that this particular keyboard can emulate any other keyboard ever created. If you just use the filters and play with the filters, mm-hmm. it can emulate any other keyboard and potentially any instrument if you know the proper uh, you know parameters. And the Ghost Dog theme, the doo doo, it sounds like uh. It actually was a uh, it was a partial of a flute sample, just taken out just one that one frequency of it, and then played across the piano. So that was um, how I came up with that right there, mixed in with with uh, some muddy uh, string pads, you know what I mean, and a muddy um and a muddy uh, uh string guitar sample. So it was a pretty uh, awkward combination, but the sound <laughs> of it, but the sound of it is funny when I made that particular song. The sound of it was uh, to go along with Ghost Dog had a lot of birds in this movie, you know. And reading, reading, uh, studying music, I, re- I read about um, Peter and the Wolf and how the composer used an instrument to reflect each 
animal. For instance, when the wolf came, he threw on the tri bones. When the when the bird came, he threw on the flute. So this is why on the ghost dog uh, uh, theme, you hear that flute in there because he had a lot of birds. And when the movie first came on, the bird was flying. So I started with that flute sound so you could feel that joyfulness. But it's also put into a rizzle context. So it's joy mixed with sorrow and, and morbid. Morbidity, did you say? Yeah. Yes. Well, there's something very eerie about the theme. That's what I mean. I think I meant eerie. Then, if the morbid and eerie don't mean the same thing. <laughs> what, do they mean the same thing? Morbid no. and eerie. Well, e- e- eerie is kind of mysterious, and morbid has to do with death. But but I think it's both because the movie has a lot to do with death. Right. Well, uh, I, I'll say eerie then and morbid because I wanted I wanted to be like the catch you know the catcher you know the spirituality of the bird, but also. To capture like the internal of Ghost Dog, you know, what yeah, I mean, he's yeah. a very troubled in, uh, individual, really. So you use the word detuned. What do you mean by detuned, and what is detuned in 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 well, the music well, we just heard? De- well, um, you know, when a, when a piano gets old, right, and it sits in your studio for a long time, it becomes detuned, meaning you know, all the notes are maybe uh, not a, not a half step, but maybe a. Uh, one eighth of a step just out of tune mm-hmm. in the proper cro- uh, chromatic order, and um, I like that sound. You know, most people come in and go, "I need to tune your, I need to tune the keyboard, or I need to tune your piano, or tune your guitar." I like it when it's detuned because that means it's not in, it's not in the musical harmony according to the theory of music, but yet it has a harmony of its own. And that's uh, that's something that I use a lot um, throughout uh, my um, whether I sample the sound or whether I played it. That's the sound I use a lot. And, and I think one of the reasons why that works when you do it is because you're often using like one note lines, so so exactly. there aren't like chords that you're playing because the chords might sound really raggy, but that single note line it 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 works it really well. Out. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's like a person that sings that doesn't really that's vocal trained. He'd be able to you know he be he'll be able to sing and give you all the feelings he he want to give you, but he may not be able to sing in the key of A. You know, but he'll be able to sing it, uh, sing a song that's in the key of A, and just because of his, if he has a natural style and a good flow, it just somehow meshes all together. I think that's what hip hop singing is. You know, like a lot of hip hop artists that sing. Right. You hear you hear some of these songs. I know, like people hear it on the radio. Like, how is this song on the radio? Or even one of the great hip hop R and B singers, Mary J. Blige, in her early career, a lot of you know, uh, trained musicians was like, oh, Mary's always out of tune, or. But the hip hop generation loved it because it was no sound like that. The only sound was that was her, you know. You've had several personas over the years. I mean, your your birth name is Robert Diggs. You're known as the RZA. Um, that's a, a name you, you took when you co-founded the Wu Tang Clan. Mm-hmm. You're also Bobby Digital, and early in your career, you were Prince Rakim. So um, let's start with Prince Rakim. I mean, who? who what did you see see that persona as being? The music that you made with him is different from Wu Tang. Uh, I would say so. Well, Prince Rakim, you know, what I mean, I was basically more of a student in um, in the studies of life, shall I say, and as well as um, a st- definitely a student to the to music and the music industry and things like that. But as Prince Rakim, you know, being young, seventeen, eighteen years old, you know, all you think about is girls, yo. You know what I mean, and um. And and I was, you know, pretty popular guy with the girls. Like, you know, a lot of girls found, you know, had good things to say about me. Oh, he's cute and he always got on some polo and Gucci and he's just you know, and I and I and I actually like to carry myself like a prince. I was the kind of kid that 
you know, kept his fingernails right. You know what I mean? Wouldn't touch, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't touch my food without a napkin and, you know, uh, walked like Mr. Spock, had my hands behind my back. I used to walk very straight up and very, uh, very elegant. You know what I mean? That's how I felt. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, uh, I probably had about 30 different polo suits that um, I got, you know, because we had uh, many ways to make hustles back then. But every day I'll come out with a new suit on. You may see me wear a powder blue polo suit with a gold chain, you know, gold teeth. You know, just something real fly, real fly, you know what I mean? And, that's, and that, that was kind of the persona of Prince Joaquin. He was re- definitely a, a fly guy, as the word was back in those days. Well, why, don't then, we, um, why don't we hear a 1991 record that you made as Prince Joaquin? And this is, ooh, I love you, Joaquin. Oh no, okay, let's go for it. Come on. <laughs> okay. It seems I'm a theme for a sex routine. Love to hit them scream. And my response is oh, always satisfied them. You know how I flow. With sex, I'm not lazy, I'm buck wild and crazy. I kiss the bosoms, but never eat the daisies. And my ladies love me deeply because I'm handsome, charming, and freaky. And when they meet me, they won't go. And now I'm stuck. Okay, so let's move from Prince Rakim to the RZA. How does the RZA compare to Prince Rakim? Well, um, when I came with Wu Tang Clan, and the first single was called "Protect Your Neck," and you notice in the uh, in the video, it's like "Exit Prince Rakim and Enter the RZA," because it was no time for me to be a pretty boy. It was no time for me to be this this elegant guy that was, you know, into the ladies and into how I dressed and into how I looked. I became the RZA, basically, which was a, a total rebel, really. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, somebody that 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 was that had it with society, and that was coming to get his fair take of society. You notice when I came in as the RZA, I was you know came very militant in my look. I was very militant in my action. I just went through so much different personal traumas, as far as with the law, with my life, with people in the streets, the hood, and um, I basically made a Z. You know what I mean? I made the first curve in my Z, shall I say, and uh. And I was like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not longer Prince, no, no longer Prince Joaquin. That's that's part of my attribute, but I'm going to be the RZA, you know what I mean? Because you know that that means I was strictly dealing with focusness. Um, it's funny because I didn't even like care how I dressed. I didn't even change change my clothes that often, you know what I mean? I just was this one focused individual that was built on making a legacy for himself. And the Z in mathematics, you know what I mean? Because, you know, I study mathematics. And the Z stands for zigzag zig, which represents knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. It means, like, you can go this way, and, and sometimes you're going to have to zag back because you're going to go back and check on yourself. But then you realize you was going the right way in the beginning, so you zig again. And that shows you that sometimes you may know something, and you can understand it, but if you don't live through it, you know, it's, it's not fully um, understood by you. And so that zag is me living it out. And when I zagged, you know, I went through so much troubles of life and life experiences. So now I have the experience. So now I had to zig again. And um, that's that's and that's what really put that Z in my name. I was like, you know what? I don't went this way, that way. And now I understand which way I got to walk. And and uh, I actually walked a very straight, narrow line from the day that I took that title to RZA. I didn't really, uh, you know, commit, you know, commit sins or just I was a real straightforward focused determined individual and 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 I gave myself a five-year period you know what I mean of to make sure I stayed on that path and I'm, and that's what I did and after the five years 
Well, after the five years, which uh, I basically had took that name in 1992, and then uh, by 1997, uh, um, my idea was I'll be on the top. That you know, that you know, musically, you know, and what I stood for would be the top or the top uh, in, in the world. You know? And I think in '97 it happened. I think in 1997 Wu Tang made it, made a number one record or something like that. Um, it was the number one hip hop group. Uh, number one selling hip-hop group um, at the time, you know, nominated for Grammys and all that, you know, and really the number one inf influential groups at that time. So it actually kind of came to fruition from that five-year plan. Well, I really want to thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me. RZA of the Wu-Tang Clan speaking with Terry Gross in 2005. Next up, our archive interview with Andre 3000. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Yo, chill with the feedback block, we don't need that. It's 10 o'clock, ho, where the f*** just see that? Feeling mad hostile, ran out postal, going like Christ when I speak the gospel. Stroll with the holy robe, then attack the globe with the buckets. Style the ruckus, 10 times 10 men committing mad sin. Turn the other cheek and I'll break your f*** chin. Slain boom bangs like African drums. Coming in around a mountain when I come. Crazy flamboyant for the rap enjoyment. For these coke killer labels, so ain't had hit since I seen Aunt Mabel. Be doing all the sin like Kang did Abel. Now they money's getting stuck to the This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns and Foster. To Stearns and Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns and Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot on It's Been a Minute from NPR. We're commemorating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop this week. Next, we feature our interview with Andre Benjamin, a.k.a. Andre 3000, half of the duo OutKast, along with Antoine Patton, a.k.a. Big Boy. Their debut album, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music, released 29 years ago, helped put Southern hip-hop on the map. Players Ball from the album hit number one on the Billboard chart. Outcast's 2003 album, Speaker Box, The Love Below, which included the hit Hey Ya, sold 11 million copies and won three Grammys. In all, they've released seven albums, most of them platinum. Andre 3000 is known for his depth, and in the early 2000s, his exuberance and style. Esquire once named him the world's best-dressed man. He's collaborated with Beyonce, Lil Wayne, Drake, and Frank Ocean. And he's also been an actor, appearing in films like Be Cool and Four Brothers, and on the TV shows The Shield and American Crime. 
In 2006, he co-created, wrote the music for, and voiced the main character of the Cartoon Network animated series, Class of 3000. When Terry spoke with him, they had just made the movie Idlewild and wrote the soundtrack, which was a hybrid of hip-hop and jazz. Andre also starred in it. Here's a song from the soundtrack. wanted to like branch out from rapping because rapping's a young man's game and one of the things you've been doing lately is acting and you, you start along with um, big boy Andre Patton from from Outcast you start in the film Idlewild which is set in a Georgia speakeasy you know during prohibition and you're the piano player at the speakeasy mm-hmm. and even though it's the kind of speakeasy at which fights are constantly breaking out the production numbers in it are as lavish as if it were the Cotton Club of Harlem um, ah, and thank you <laughs> and um, I thought we could hear, before we, we talk more about the movie, I thought we could hear the song that in the movie is the production number that plays at the very end of the film, behind the closed credit music. And, ah, PJ I mean, and Rooster. And uh, you're at the piano in this, at, at the start, in a beautiful like tuxedo, and then you leave the piano to like sing and dance, and there are a scantily clad chorus line of dancers <laughs> behind you, and there's stairways with dancers going up and down the stairs, like in the old production numbers. Yeah. So this is, this is a fantastic song. Well, let's hear it, and then we'll talk. Andre Benjamin from um, the film Idlewild. Um, is this the kind of song that you would have written yourself if it wasn't for this movie? Um, yes and no. Believe it or not, that song is about six years old. Really? And yeah, originally it was a, a guitar-based song, and it was kind of just me and the beat playing a guitar. And um, I, ha- I had some of the lyrics um, even five years ago, and when we were doing this movie... Um, I thought it worked perfectly. And so I had to change the production a little bit and make it more piano-based because electric guitars, I mean, they were invented back then, but they weren't really where they are now. 
and I um, added a second and third verse, and Big Boy, you know, came on and put his thing on and make it what it is now. Um, so yes, I mean, even the lyric, you know, ain't nobody like my style. You know, I like my fire. They blow it out. You know, that was something that Andre 3000 was actually feeling, you know, five years ago before the movie came about. So it just so happened that when the movie came around, Percival was going through the same thing that Andre 3000 was going through. So it made total sense. And just the singing style was different because the way I sang it before, um, it wouldn't work for 1930. So, you know, by listening to a lot of Cab Calloway things, you know, it was like big voice, big throat, like huge production, horns, you know. And so um, I just made it into what it is now. I love the way you talk about Andre 3000 as if he were a person that you knew, <laughs> you know. Well, I know him sometimes. <laughs> you he's know, a, he's, he's he your persona for, 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 for the band Outcast. So how do you see Andre 3000 as compared to yourself, Andre Benjamin? Um, I guess if you can imagine, like if you're a kid and you're in the mirror and you're playing dress up and you're, an, you're this other character and as soon as your mom walks in, you change back into that person. And so Andre Benjamin was the kid that sat there and say, hey, hmm, what can I play? Um, and he's in the mirror and he's putting on his uh, cowboy and Indian suit. Once he puts on his outfits or, once, or, you know, once he starts to play and get into his kind of fun head, he's Andre 3000. You know, so um, Andre 3000 is that character within Outkast that kind of just goes there and has a ball, you know, does his thing. Andre Benjamin is, you know, the person that goes to Whole Foods, you know that goes to the mall, you know, goes to the dry cleaners, <laughs> you know, pumps gas, you know. That's that's my mama name. My mama gave me that name, Andre Lauren Benjamin. And where does the 3000 come from? Uh, around 1999, right before it was, you know, about to turn into 2000, you know, the whole world was going crazy. Like, oh, man, my computers are going to change over, and they're going, we're all going to die, and, you know, everything's going to go kaput. And so 3000 actually means the year 3000, you know, the 3000 A.D., kind of to look ahead and to um, to keep myself excited. So the 3000 was tacked on to Andre because I have a kind of like a personality where I get bored really fast. So I have to find stuff to keep myself interested. And uh, that's where the Cowboys and Indians come in. Now, you know, the music that you were that you wrote for Idlewild or that you changed <laughs> for for Idlewild um, draws on music, a lot of different kinds of music, you know, like funk and hip-hop, but also early jazz. Did working on that movie expose you to music that you otherwise might not have listened to? Of course. Um, you, know, you know, growing up, I mean, I've always, you know, heard 30s or 40s music, but it was always, you know, in some other picture. It was always kind of like background music. Like, I can't say that I just ride around listening to 1930s, 40s music. I think uh, the quality and the production you know, it's, it's kind of different from what I'm used to right now. So when preparing for the role for Percival in Idlewild, um, I had to go meet morticians. You know, I had to go to funeral homes to actually see how these people live. He, he plays a them. mortician, that's why. Yeah, Yeah. yes, yes. I play a mortician in Idlewild. So in preparing for the role, I had to go talk to morticians and had to sit down and ask them about their life. And I also had to get into the time frame um, of what was going on. So I, I watched uh, a couple of movies from, you know, the 30s, 40s era, uh, you know, things like Casablanca, um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, Bugsy Berkeley movies, um, Stormy Weather, um, and, you know, things of that nature. And, 
I listen to a lot of music, and mainly Cab Calloway. And it's funny because if you listen to Cab Calloway's music, he was actually rapping back in those times. But the sounds, you know, the big band sound, is I was introduced to it by the, by the movie because I was never into it. So just to hear that kind of instrumentation, even though in Outkast music I've been producing songs that had, you know, horns before and, you know, those sounds, I mean, it's the arrangements, you know. So it's, it's the horn blast and it's the way that the parts are written that are different. So, um, so every song wasn't like this huge big band song. I mean, some of them had beats to them, you know, some of them had, um, I guess the stylings were kind of a funky version of 1930s. Now, um, you're, you're a character who is this um, a kind of shy piano player at the speakeasy. Says about having to play there when he's forced into the spotlight during, during mm-hmm. one scene. He says, I hate the spotlight. And I can't imagine you ever saying you hate the spotlight. You seem to just love performing so much and seem to have these kind of like old style show business values of loving to like sing and dance with costumes. Uh, that's where the Cowboys and Indians come in. Right. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's funny because when Brian Brian Barber, who's the director and writer of Idlewild, and who also did directed your 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 Hey uh, uh video. Right, and Roses and a couple of others. But um, you know, I've known Brian since he was in film school in Atlanta at Clark. And uh, you know, he'd come to parties and, you know, he'd say, Hey man, I want you to be in my movie and this is when we first came out. And he said, hey, I want you in this movie. Check out this script or, you know, let's get down, let's get together and, just, you know, just come up with some ideas or whatever. So Brian has known me for a long time. He's known me. He's known Big Boy for a long time. So when we were putting this movie together, he knows our personalities that a lot of people don't know. You know, and it's funny you say that you that I seem like, OK, I love to jump on stage and I love to, you know, do the whole Hollywood. I love to sing and love to dance and love the spotlight and love to pose. And that's kind of not true. You know, it's kind of I started doing music because I like to do it and I didn't know what I was getting into. So when he says, you know, I'm forced into a situation, I'm I'm not really forced into it, but I kind of painted myself into a corner where I have to do it. But I do like to do music. But a lot of things that come along with it, you know, I'm not really a fan of. Um, I just like to do great work. I like I like to create stuff. I, so it be it music, film. Whatever, you know, if the end product is good, you know, I'm loving it. Andre 3000 of the hip-hop group Outkast speaking with Terry Gross. We'll hear more after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. 
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that you... You have to learn as an actor as how to project vulnerability because there are roles you're going to play in which you're vulnerable. And that's certainly the, the case in some scenes in Idlewild, for, for example. And vulnerability is in some ways exactly the kind of thing that a lot of rappers try to not express. Rappers on the whole, I mean, I think a lot of rappers try to look, try, try to maintain a very tough and hardened persona. Right. So um, I'm wondering, was there a transition for you of exposing more vulnerability both in your music and in your acting? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, not just in rap, I mean, in life, period. I mean, when I started off, I mean, we were just, you know, straight street rappers, you know, and I do understand where, where it comes from. I mean, a lot of actors have a hard, a lot of music guys or rappers have a hard time, you know, getting rid of this character that they've built up, you know, their whole career. And I, and I don't think it's a thing of, you know, them pretending or trying to be hard to put on. But it's like the street life, is, it, it won't allow you to show, you know, that soft side because, I mean, you'll get trampled, you know, just in the street. And so you have to you have to kind of toughen up or man up in a certain kind of way. And if you've built your whole career on letting people know, you know, that I don't play and you have to get into a character that does play or that does let other emotions come out. I mean, that may be a hard step, but even before I started doing film, I mean, in life, I mean, I knew I had to take my music other places because once once again, I got bored with doing the same thing. So I got deeper and deeper into my music. And when I got deeper and deeper into my music, I mean, I had to expose certain sides of myself. And even when you look at Speaker Box and The Love Below, The Love Below was just that. That was the meaning of The Love Below. I mean, like on the top of a man, I mean, you have this kind of hard shell or this kind of you know, I'm tough and nothing can hurt hurt me. But the love below is those feelings that every man feels when he goes home, you know, and he thinks about these things, you know, and he thinks he thinks about his life, he thinks about his woman, he thinks about his kid. And, I mean, and there's no room to be tough there, you know, so that's what the love below is about. So when it came time to act, um, it wasn't that much of a step because I knew that you have to, to be an actor. I mean, you can't you can't act. I mean, that's that's the key. Once you act, people can see you acting, and um, that's not good, you know. I, I talked to Mark Wahlberg, who kind of, you know, I think he's done the transition the best, you know, where people actually consider him more an actor than a music guy, you know. And he said, man, I had to, and he's from the hardest parts of Boston, and he said, man, I had to make a point where I was like, man, I, I'm going, am, am I going to put on for my homeboys in the neighborhood, or am I going to go out here and just do what I have to do? Well, okay. So you were saying that um, you know in your in your CD, the love below that that means the person like the person beneath the tough veneer and the emotions beyond that that tough exterior. Right. So l- let me play like the, the really big hit from this, uh, which is "Hey Ya," your your, your song, and um, I mean this song is like so much fun, and I guess fun is one of the things that would not. Be good if you're trying to have that really tough exterior. Yes? Yeah, and it's funny you say that because in the Hey Ya video, I mean, I had a lot of fun doing it. And you can see a lot of smiles, you know. 
And um, I got a lot of feedback from just that alone. You know, a lot of DJs and a lot of people on the street, they were like, man, that's cool. Like, I ain't seen a rapper smile in a long time. You know, and it, I think smiling is powerful. You know, I mean, I think, I mean, come on, God gave you gave you teeth, He gave you lips, He gave you emotions. Come on, smile now. I mean, you ain't tough twenty four seven. You know, that's just not true. If you want to keep it real, now that's keeping it real. Well, before we hear, hey, would you just talk a little bit about putting this together, like writing the song? You play all of the instruments except bass on it, I think. Um, right. So can you talk about like conceiving the record and, you know, conceiving the song and then the music happening uh, behind the song? Uh, with Hey Ya, uh, that song was three years old before before the public heard it. So a lot of times, like I'll start a song, just a, a rough idea, and I'll move on to something else. And it's, the song is just not ready for the people at the time. Um, sometimes it takes, you know, just that time to incubate or whatever. And so when I was working on The Love Below, um, I had a theme in my head, you know. It was about love. It was about emotion. So even when people are listening to Hey Ya and dancing around and, you know, they think it's crazy and they think it's fun, if you really pay attention to the lyrics, it's really a pretty dark song, you know. So it's, it, it has that kind of, I guess, uh, I guess you, what do you call it, that dichotomy that kind of is dark on one end and it's light on the other end. But when putting it together... It was pretty much just me at home with my guitar, and I was playing these chords over and over and over again. I'm not a great guitar player, so these were some of the first chords that I ever learned. And, um, you know, during that time, you know, I was into a lot of garage, a lot of punk music. And um, and I was just going for it. And so this was my interpretation of what I thought those sounds were. And um, the lyrics usually, they start from me messing around on my guitar playing and I'll just start to kind of baby talk lyrics, you know, and I usually record myself on a micro cassette recorder. And so, you know, I'll be, you know, and then I'll listen to it back and damn near translate what I'm saying. You know, like I almost have to decode my yippity app and that's what comes out. You know, my baby don't mess around because she loves me so, you know, and that's what came out. And it just uh, starts to make sense after a while. And then um, I came back three years later working on the Speaker Box Love Below album and came back with the second verse. And then the, uh, you know, Polaroid part, you know, that was kind of just a freestyle, actually, in the studio. And Beyonce's video was on the screen when I was doing the song. Um, I forget which video it was, but I thought it was an amazing video and she was showing plenty of attitude. And so that's how she crept her way into the song, you know, when it says, uh, now Beyonce's. And Lucy Lou's, those were actually commercials or scenes that were on the TV when I was in the vocal booth. And um, they crept their way into, into the song. So you're, you're describing how you, you speak in almost you know, like uh, baby talk when you're first writing right. the melody for the song. Is the hey, hey ya part of the original baby talk? Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Um, yes, yes. And that's probably why it's hey ya because... I really didn't have any words, so you just, hey, yeah, you know. Well, it works, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you fine-tune it, and you know it's saying, hey, yeah. You kinda, it's kind of like really listening to another language, and then you listen back to it and say, oh, okay, now what is he saying? What is he saying? And then you make it out. You know, you're being a translator, and that's what, that's what happens. 
a lot of people get the song mistake and they say, oh, man, I love that Hey Now, Hey Now song. <laughs> like, well, it's, it's Hey Ya. <laughs> well, here it is. And this is uh, Andre Benjamin from the Outcast album, Speaker Box, The Love Below. One, two, three, uh. My baby don't mess around because she loves me so and this I know for sure. Uh. But does she really want to but can't stand to see me walk out the door? Don't try to fight the feeling because the thought alone is killing me right now. Uh. Thank God for mom and dad for sticking together because we don't know how. Andre Benjamin, a.k.a. Andre 3000 of Outcast, on one of their big hits. We'll hear more of his interview with Terry Gross after a break. This is Fresh Air. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We were talking before about how, as a rapper, a lot of people have a a very kind of tough image and that you kind of have to if you live in tough neighborhoods. Otherwise, people are going to take advantage of you. Um, One of the things that you do is um, you design clothes. Mm-hmm. And you wear a lot of very kind of extravagant theatrical clothes, you know, on stage and in videos, in movies. Um, and I'm wondering how that fits in with, like, the tough exterior that you needed to have when you were growing up. Did you wear theatrical clothes when you were young, or is that an indulgence you couldn't, 
you couldn't afford because it would have been too weird. Well, no, actually, um, in high school, I mean, it was all, it was still all about about style. Like in Atlanta, it was called you know being a prep, and when you're a prep, it's kind of like uh, it was like a closed culture, and we were considered what you would call like low heads. And this was um, even though you know Ralph Lauren, I think he started in '67. Um, he was kind of like the general of this whole stylesman, you know, thing. And as a kid, you know, that's all we wanted to be. We wanted to look like, you know, we wanted to look like we we had it, look like we went to college. And so everybody, were, we were into clothes and we did certain things with them, like in our own funky kind of way. Like we would take pants and we would dye them different colors or uh, we'd wear, you know, two or three different color polo shirts on top of each other just so we can have color combinations and all this type of stuff. So it was real, it was a real style thing. So that's always been in me. But I think people get the stage antics and the stage wear, I think, mixed up with streetwear. You know, when you're on stage, you know, you, I mean, you wear the white wigs or you wear, you know, these Indian, you know, no shirt and, you know, huge furry pants or whatever. I mean, but those are not things that happen on the street, though, you know. So... If the, to answer your question, they don't fit in. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't fit in with it. But at the same time, the attitude that you do it with, you know, some of the hardest people on the street, you know, they come up to me and be like, man, you know, I love what you do. And I think it comes from the attitude of what you're wearing, not actually what you're wearing. Well, Andre Benjamin, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me on the show. Andre 3000 of Outcast spoke to Terry Gross in 2006. On Monday's show, we'll conclude our series of hip-hop interviews with Jay-Z, regarded as one of the most successful rappers of all time. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorak. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Charlie Kyer. We'll close out with music by Cab Calloway, who Andre 3000 said he was listening to in preparation for the movie soundtrack, Idlewild. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give it the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Try a tomato plate, too. Here's Cacciatore, Dory. Taste of baloney, Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house. I fix your favorite dishes. Hoping this good food fills ya. Work my hands to the bone in the kitchen alone. You better eat if it kills ya. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> stories that change the way you think about your life. How How did we get here? 
The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.